0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hi, everybody. So, tonight is week three. I hope everyone remembered that we didn't meet on the fourth. Anybody come on the fourth? Oh, good. And I hope uh, you're finding some time to reflect on these teachings on integrity for me, they're really energizing and provocative, um, and so much more accessible than I mean. As much as the other teachings of the Buddha, the more the wisdom end of things and the teachings around samadhi, you know, as potent and wonderful as they are, these teachings should be should feel very accessible and have a lot sort of bring into view so much of our life. You know, the choices we make and the questions we have about our lives. So uh, the last couple of weeks, we've mostly just reflected on sila or integrity, ethical conduct generally, and, uh, and the basic value of non-harming. And then tonight, we'll talk about the second and third precepts. So you remember the precepts, undertaking the training not to harm, not to kill. Undertaking the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given. Undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. And then next week we'll do undertaking the training to refrain from false speech, harsh speech, idle speech, slanderous speech. And then the week after, undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind we so really looking at our relationship to intoxicants of all kinds, and then I thought the last week we'd look at the eight precepts and talk more specifically about renunciation as uh, in terms of ethical conduct and integrity. And some of these things, like even the one around intoxicants, isn't. It's not that intoxicants themselves are immoral. It just makes it a little easier for us to lose our integrity when our mind's intoxicated, or a lot easier, depending on how intoxicated and depending on the circumstances. So we'll get to that in a couple weeks. So just to review what I've covered thus far. So tonight we don't have small groups, and uh, we'll have some time at the end for discussion. But the first point I made in maybe week one is that in the Buddhist system, in the Buddhist teachings, sila, this, these teachings on ethical conduct, it's something that's internal. So we don't look toward a god or laws or even cultural standards to determine what's right or wrong. The idea that what makes something immoral in a Buddhist sense would make something unskillful, we discern directly in the heart, in the mind, like the effect. If something is unskillful, the effect in the mind should be observable. When we're hating somebody, if we have some mindfulness, we'll notice the quality of that mind or that heart. Like that constriction of hate will be seen as unskillful because it will be experienced as suffering, and it will be seen as leading to suffering and maybe contributing, depending on what we're doing with it, to the suffering of others. And if there's an authentic experience of non-hate, love, kindness, friendliness, right? If we actually, and with a lot of stability, a lot of clarity, we look at the heart that is experiencing kindness, wouldn't it be obvious that this is wholesome, real kindness? No, I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't examples of things being, we're, we're confused, like is it skillful, is it unskillful, but that's because some intentions are mixed. They're sort of, have some elements of hate and some elements of kindness. So, but it doesn't mean that things aren't one way or the other, it just means sometimes we have both some wholesome intentions moving in the mind and heart, and some unwholesome intentions moving in the mind and heart. This is from Andy Olensky's uh, article he wrote called An Organic Spirituality. It was in the Insight Journal, which he was the editor of for many years. And in that article he writes, what are the key features of this more ancient, more organic spirituality taught by the Buddha in his lifetime. And he—he he, before this paragraph I'm reading, he gives a little of the history. Some of you know, but there was this indigenous spirituality in the Indus Valley in North India, maybe also in South India. And then these Indo-Europeans sort of rode down uh, into the sort of Indian subcontinent. Is that what they call it? And uh, so they had a different take on spirituality, they had these sort of sky gods. It was more, they describe it, academics describe it as a more masculine kind of religious tradition. And so uh, part of the dynamic in, uh, in northern India has been this, uh, this mixing of the, the stuff that came from the north, um, it's sort of more a lot of the what we call Brahmanism is that these rituals, sacrifice, priestly caste, and as opposed to this more uh, um, this the roots there that had a much more internal, like instead of looking out outward for inspiration to the idea of God or different this sort of pantheon of deities. It was much more introspective, looking inward. And so there's this this dynamic. And part of that dynamic, like when the Buddha taught, it was a real response to this priestly caste and this externalization of spirituality and much more experiential. And that's what Andy is saying here. So going back to these paragraphs. To begin with, it's radically experiential. What do you see and feel and touch and know for yourself when you attend to the immediacy of the present moment with steady and focused awareness? The outward direction is fraught with illusion, projected from the mysterious steps of the psyche, right? All of our conditioning, when we imagine, you know, we basically tell ourselves a story. I mean, that's when you, whether it's the Greek gods or the, you know, Indian gods or the whatever it is, these very elaborate and often beautiful and interesting sort of mythologies, um, they're sort of projections. And there's a lot of shadow in it because we're not aware that they're constructions of the mind, that they're just coming out of the subconscious in different ways and being expressed outward. According to the sages of the river valleys, only by exploring the inner landscapes, the inner landscape, the nuances and subtle textures of lived experience can useful and authentic wisdom be discovered. Fearless and honest introspection will soon reveal the core defects of the human condition. This is the noble truth of suffering. The mind and body are riddled with stumbling stumbling blocks, choke points, nodes of tension, knots of pain and a veritable fountainhead of selfish, hurtful, and deluded psychological stuff. Isn't that what we see when we meditate? The mind's capacity for awareness, the knowing that arises and passes away, drop by drop in the stream of consciousness, is constantly hindered, fettered, intoxicated, and polluted by such internal defilements. The enterprise of organic spirituality is to untangle these tangles, to untie these knots, to unbind the mind, moment by moment, breath by breath. From the imprisoning net of unwholesome and unhealthy manifestations, the reward for a life of careful inner cultivation is the liberation of the mind through wisdom. A remarkable transformation of the mind that awakens to its full potential of awareness without obstruction or limitation. And I think I read this quote from Gil Fronstop. This pragmatic approach is more conducive to investigation than to guilt. And so this is really the endeavor, and this is his first point that I'm just coming back to that I've made before, that morality is this internal experiential thing. And the trouble is, you know, culturally and and it's been deeply imprinted in our mind through culture, we have a lot of uh, baggage around morality about what's right or wrong. Instead of this sense of self-reliance, like I can figure out if I put my heart to it, put my mind to it, am I, if I'm fi- willing to be fearless, I can figure out through observation, through this experiential observation, the skillfulness and unskillfulness of whatever might arise in my life, in my mind, in any moment of my existence. I'm not dependent on you telling me I'm bad or you're telling me I'm good. In fact, it's often confusing what those around us are suggesting, that we're good or bad, right? How many of us, all of us, you know, have been probably traumatized by people telling us mostly that we're bad, but even being told that we're good can be, in its own funny way, traumatizing. You know, parents who always are telling their child, oh, that's okay, you're fine. You know, or people looking up to us as adults without realizing that, you know, projecting stuff on us, like, you must be great, you're so great. When we do those things, we do. (laughs) And then maybe we feel okay now because... I believe you that I'm great, not this sort of unpleasant feeling like I'm not living up to my deeper values, right? That wholesome regret, that wholesome concern that, you know, that activity, that way of being, you know, the way I eat food when no one's around or the, you know, the things I let my mind dwell on, do I trust that people think I'm good or do I trust the actual direct immediate feeling like, no, that doesn't feel very good. What are we gonna trust? So it works both ways, whether people are calling you great or people are calling you bad. We have to uh, hold that at a distance because the fact is they don't really know. People don't really know whether how we're living, how we're relating to our experience, how we're showing up in the world. People don't really know whether we're setting emotion hell for ourselves or setting emotion release and freedom, more love, more wisdom for ourselves. But we can know, and that's the important thing. And in a way, the whole path is all about that, you know, figuring that out. And it's really the birth, this is the birthplace of compassion, self compassion, this basic friendliness, this kindness, is that. We realize, you know, it comes from a place of self-reliance or independence. Like, oh, I can take care of myself. Because it's precisely because, like I mentioned, I think, last week, this birth of the understanding of karma, that intentions matter. And as I observe my, atten- my intentions, motivations, without uh, with a stable mind, without judgment, I can discern the skillfulness or unskillfulness of my intentions. I can begin to comprehend the dynamic of karma by observing the moral quality, the ethical quality of my intentions, whether they're leading to hell or to release. And that's the birthplace of an authentic kindness. Right? It's like, oh, because otherwise we don't care, like if it's, if we don't, if we feel helpless, it's easy not to care. If it feels like life is just screwing us, or it's random, or whatever other thing we might think, it interrupts, it, it uh, sort of keeps the heart from a more authentic expression of love or kindness. And once we, care about this existence, like knowing that in this very direct personal way, let's say, that I can be responsible for happiness and for suffering, and that it's a very uh, alive dynamic. That's, you know, I often say it's not easy being a human being. It's like realizing how easy it is for me to act out the unwholesome intentions because of the momentum and how important it is to learn how to act on the wholesome intentions because of what it sets in motion. As I get a sense of that existential situation, I, my compassion spreads to all of you because I realize you're in that same balance or not so balanced point of about to be swept away in ways that are not so helpful causing suffering for yourself and others, or hopefully in moments, really doing some things that are deeply healing and freeing and releasing. And that seeing our own existential situation helps us recognize that it's everywhere. Every being we see is sort of living that same struggle, maybe, I'm not sure that's the best word, but. Has, has that same responsibility. And so the more we uh, direct our attention in this way, I mean, this is really what we first do with awareness, is we pay attention to this more gross level of our life because precisely because it's the more gross, obvious level of our action, our words, our thoughts, our actions in the world, and what they set in motion. Um, we can see that as a, a gift to ourselves and other. And the Buddha used this image of sila, ethical conduct or the practice of integrity, as a gift, an act of generosity. And we want to really feel the joy of giving. Like when we're Restraining ourselves from acting out in ways that we think are unskillful that appear to us to be unskillful it's like a beautiful gift we should feel really good, like you know how good it feels when you give somebody something that they really want that's really useful for them it's a it's a very particular and beautiful kind of joy when you give somebody just what they need, just what they want that makes their life better and this is we can have that exact feeling with Sila. Like when we're showing up in our households, in our workplaces, in our larger community with a lot of integrity, you have just one interaction with a lot of integrity at work, let's say. You know, it should, the aftertaste should feel like you've given yourself and this person a real gift. You've given the world a real gift. You know, that feels satisfying to live in that way. So we can practice uh, feeling that generosity. Here's what the Buddha said about that. There are these five gifts, pristine, of long-lasting, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated and never before adulterated, which are not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, are not despised by the wise ones. What are these five? Here, a noble practitioner gives up the destruction of life and abstains from it. Right. So, living with kindness, giving up the taking of what is not given and abstains from it. Which is like this. Is why I did the meditation on contentedness. Right. Because that gives up the taking of what is not given, that comes, that arises, the non-stealing arises from being content or giving up sexual misconduct and abstains from it. And there's so many, you know, the way we flirt or uh, kind of expectations we put on people that we're sexually attracted to, uh, it really, the, the unskillful part of that comes when we're unable to feel content. When we're discontent and we're identified with the discontent, then we're willing to say things, act in ways that maybe objectify or harm other people with our sexual energy. Gives up false speech, abstains from it. Gives up wines, liquors, and intoxicants, which are the basis of negligence and abstains from them. In doing so, one gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, freedom from hostility, freedom from oppression. Isn't that a great sentence? In doing so, one gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, freedom from hostility, freedom from oppression. Now, what brings what this brings to mind For me, and I'm sure some of you have had this thing, like even when I'm trying to get a centipede out of the bathtub and outside, or a spider, you know how they get caught in your bathtubs, or, you know, uh, doing something to one of my cats that when there's an injury and I need to give them some medicine or do something that it hurts, they don't like it. You know, we approach with this, um, like, you don't need to be afraid of me. In my heart, I have no ill, Ill intent. I, I find myself saying that to creatures like at Prairie Farm, our common grounds retreat property, we catch mice in the building in these live traps, and then we walk the, try to get them as soon as they go into the trap so they're not in that panic state being in that enclosed space walk them a couple hundred meters out in the woods or along the road and then release them. But I, I really use this reflection, like I, and sometimes I'll even say it out loud, but internally I'm definitely like, I have no ill intent. I do not want to harm you in any way. I want you to have a good, I don't know if you're going to have a good life. I don't know how harmful it might be to sort of be put in a new space but that's not my intention to harm you. And I use that a lot with the bugs in my house and because it helps me modify the tendency to rush and to be afraid when I remember like I have this possibility of not having ill intent, not wanting to harm them at all. And it's a really beautiful thing to sort of walk into a space I mean, I even do that a lot um, at the beginning of Dharma talks. You know, like at the end of the sit, but before I start to talk. I'll just have the feeling like, oh no, I'm totally, I don't know if the talk's going to be any good. I don't know if it's going to be useful. I don't know if I prepared enough. But what I do know is right now, I don't have any ill intent. I'm not here to try to get something from the crowd. I just, want to offer what might be useful. And it's again, it's like I feel a lot of safety in that mind space, that heart space. And it's a heart space any of us can train ourselves to inhabit, hopefully more and more often in our lives. You know, when you walk home, like or when you walk in the door tonight, assuming you live with other people or even if you have pets or animals that you live with, you can or just the vibe in the neighborhood, you can sort of show up in your home space with that like, even in terms of you relating to yourself. Honey, I'm I'm really here for you. I'm not here to be destructive in any way, to cause harm in any way. I may accidentally, I may through delusion, but here and now in this moment, observing the quality of my mind, the quality of the intentions or motivations that are here now. It's like now I'm turning my attention to only wholesome intentions. That's what I'm choosing to connect with, choosing to rest with, these wholesome intentions, to do no harm, to be kind, to not take what's not given, to be generous, to be content, you know, to not act out my sexual energies in ways that confuse others, objectify others, or cause harm in any way. One, Ajahn Chah. It's very interesting. You know, these people we imagine, you know, just have amazing meditation practice. But the person he considers his most important teacher, Ajahn Man, he had a very short interaction with, uh, it was just a matter of a couple of days, I think. And uh, one of the questions, one of the few questions he asked Ajahn Man was about Sila, which is so interesting. So Ajahn Man is, if you don't know, is this the basically the founder of this reform movement in Thai Buddhism called the Thai force Tradition, which is quite influential here in the West and here at Common Ground. Uh, Thai Forest. Ajahn Channaka was just in town. He's in the Thai Forest tradition. But Ajahn Man is sort of the, it's back in the early 1900s as a monk, sort of started this back to the basics. Like, well, because Buddhism had, had started to get quite institutionalized in Thailand as a counterweight to the colonial powers. And so to sort of keep its culture together and to and unify the country, They relied a lot on the people's love of Buddhism. And so they institutionalized it. They sort of, the monarchy took control of it. And so then there was this reform movement like, you know, whatever Buddhism is, it's not about these bureaucratic institutional structures. So some of the people headed into the forests, into the more remote areas, and said, well, we'll just do what the Buddha did and see if it works still. And it did and they became really wise beings. Anyway, so Ajahn Mun, this very respected, wise person, Ajahn Chah shows up, and he says, you know what, there are a lot of rules for the monks about sila, about ethical conduct, and it gets confusing. And so Ajahn Mun had this great response to him, and it it was basically, uh, just the last part of it was something like, whenever you doubt, you know whenever you're about to say something and you doubt you have some doubt in your mind don't say it don't act on it just give it up right so this is like a really simple but useful thing with ethical conduct our thoughts and our words and our actions like if it's not clear in the moment that your intentions are wholesome if you can don't think it don't say it and don't do anything Until it's clear that what you're about to think, say, or do is wholesome, like when you look at it, you feel it, you feel what it feels like, that impulse in your heart to think something, to say something, to do something. When you feel the impulse, the intention, the about to, you're kind of like, wisdom is tasting it. Like, what does that taste like? Does it taste tight? Like hate is tight, greed is tight. Or does it feel light and open, releasing? And if you're not sure, then don't do it. Well, that's sort of an interesting approach. And it doesn't, you know, you can, you, you can understand why you might want to initially practice sitting still. Because in the rush of life, daily life, it may not be so easy to not just do something, because it always feels easy to say something, oh, I don't know if, we even, <laughs> we even say this to each other, right? It's like, I'm not sure I should say this, but, and, then, <laughs> and you know, when everybody, whenever somebody says, I probably sh- shouldn't be saying this, you can be certain they're going to say it. I mean, have you ever had someone say, I shouldn't be saying this, you know what, I'm not going to say it. We don't do that, we say, we say it then. But the fact is, we do recognize at that moment that there's some doubt in the mind. And what we should do instead is like, it's like uh, in Gil's, I think I sent you the link to, in the, on the website, our webpage, there's the link to Gil Pronsdal's uh, chapter on Sila in his book. Um, what's the name of his first book? The Issue at Hand. Thanks, Gabe. Yeah, so uh, he has that quote from the suttas about, uh, yeah, just about people who are in a dangerous situation, like breaking sila, acting out, is like putting yourself in a dangerous place. People, we wouldn't do that. So it's like saying something when we're not sure it's wholesome. It's like putting ourselves in danger. That's how we want to see it, like, I'm in a dangerous place picking up another image the, the Buddha is like picking up a snake it doesn't really matter you just shouldn't pick up a poisonous snake right? because you're in danger when you pick it up it's gonna want to bite you and it's the same thing so when we're not sure if this is skillful or not in the same way we would back away like oh I'm not sure this is safe to be standing here you know it's a little precarious Maybe I shouldn't stand here. Maybe I'll back away. Right? And the Same thing with things that we're uncertain about. So, going back, just finishing this sutta, this quote from the sutta. In doing so, one gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, freedom from hostility, freedom from oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, freedom from hostility and oppression, one will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. Right? So when we give the gift of fearlessness, you know, like when we're showing up in all the spaces we inhabit with sila, with this integrity, we're basically giving the gift of non-fear to everybody because you don't have to be afraid of me. I'm not going to act out my hate, I may have hate, but I'm not gonna act it out. I'm not gonna act out my greed, I'm not gonna act out my sexual lust in ways that are harmful. I'm not gonna use my words, my speech as a weapon or as a way of manipulating or confusing. And I'm not gonna intoxicate my mind so that I'll lose my understanding about how important it is to be full of care and what I say what I do and the reason why even what we think matters is if we keep thinking something it's just increasing the odds that we're gonna say something and do something based on what we're thinking if we keep thinking boy you're a jerk you're a jerk I hate you you know I hope something bad happens to you it's like that When we understand the law of karma, we see that that sets a motion, that increases the probability that we're going to act on those thoughts. Thoughts, intentional thoughts, are not neutral. They affect, they kind of grease the mind. Uh, And now in neuroscience, you know, they talk about these neural webs. So when I think something, it increases the strength of a neural pattern. If we think it a lot, that pattern gets very strong. And so one day, that neural pattern is going to fire, and there won't be any force of restraint there in the mind, because the mind will be distracted. So it will fire, and so it's going to go right into words and action, because the counterweight of moral restraint isn't there. Why do we want to set in motion something that we have to restrain ourselves from? Like in terms of sexual lust, if there's somebody that you're really attracted to but they're in a committed relationship or you're in a committed relationship or for whatever reason it's not an appropriate person to have a sexual relationship with, then if we allow ourselves to fantasize, and I mean I'm sure we're all guilty at some point for doing this, but we can now understand, now that we're studying more carefully, we can understand that we're greasing a pattern, we strengthening a pattern that we have to, you know, we have to come up with some psychic counterweight for, which is a lot of work. Why would we want to do that? It's like we've just created a flood, and now we've got to build a, a dam, and we've got to keep maintaining that dam. Why would we do that? Why would we build these momentums that we then have to restrain ourselves from? That's called suffering. We do it all the time. We do it even in terms, you know, sexual lust is a more obvious example, but even in terms of wanting things that we don't have money for. You know, you might think, well, I'm not going to steal to get that. But there are all these sort of shady areas like, you know, kind of cheating on our taxes by not keeping good records. So we're not really cheating. I don't I think that's all I earned, you know, when we're doing the taxes. But we weren't really vigilant of keeping track of all of our earnings, for example, like if you're an independent contractor or whatever. And it, and that choice to be a little fuzzy might be based on this understanding that with more money I can get what I've been thinking about wanting to get. So it, it makes us vulnerable to stealing, to cheating, to you know, other kinds of moral transgressions that eat away at our heart. It's not, again, it's not about other people judging you. It's not even about getting caught, although obviously if you get caught, there's a suffering in that too. The What makes something unskillful is the impression on your own heart. Whether you get caught or not, it doesn't really matter. The heart knows, right? Because the intention that was acted on immediately makes an impression on the heart. The mind stream, what we generally call me, or who I am, the mind stream is the mind that has that impression in it, unavoidably. So anything that gets acted on, any karmic act, because we thought it enough, spoke it out, acted it out, that intentional action leaves an impression on the mind stream. And the Buddha, in his confident voice, says, many of you have heard this passage, but it's useful to hear. Practitioners, abandon what is unskillful. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you to abandon what is unskillful, but because it's, uh, uh, because abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. And then the Buddha says, develop what is skillful. Basically the same passage, but then in the positive. I ask you to develop what's skillful because it's possible, because it leads to happiness. If it didn't, I wouldn't suggest, encourage you to develop what's skillful. And remember the precepts, we talk about, you know, the way they're recorded is in the negative, like what we should refrain from, restrain ourselves from. But it's really important to also work with the positive. So I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings or I undertake the training to refrain from stealing, taking what's not given, or to refrain from sexual misconduct. We can put it into the positive. I undertake the training to be kind, to be loving, I undertake the training to be generous, to be content, to be able to live simply with what I have. I undertake the training to express my sexual energies in ways that are healing and fun and not harmful for any being, not leaving any trace of harm. I mean, we could think of it that way. So we we don't... Don't get sort of um, stuck with the idea, or with the pro- make a problem out of the precepts being stated in the negative. It's really up to us, because that's just the most gross form to realize. No, I don't. Either I know this is unskillful, or I'm not sure this is uns- whether this is skillful or unskillful. So I'm going to restrain myself until I have more clarity that it really isn't unskillful. I'm going to really hold. I'm going to feel the urge and know it's just an urge. I can be intimate. I can be mindful of the urge without being swept away. And, and the, there's this, you know, sila, the integrity, the ethical conduct, it's just part of the whole engine where, like in terms of sexual conduct um, or in terms of stealing there's, it's not even an issue. Morality is not in, even an issue if there isn't some wisdom in the mind, like that our actions matter, right? That's wisdom. And it's because we have some sense that intention matters that we're going to even start paying attention to our ethical conduct. So wisdom We always talk about the engine of awakening starting with wisdom. It may be faint. It may not be very strong. But there's really no spiritual life without some wisdom. Like that life matters. That how we live matters. Otherwise, we're just sort of happy just being driven by our instinct and our habit energy. Just do whatever we want. And sometimes we live that way. Like it doesn't matter. Just do what I want. But because... But because we have a sense that it matters, that's, in Buddhism, we'd say there's some understanding of the law of karma. If you think your life matters, what you do, how you act, how you think, if you think it matters, it means you have some understanding of karma. And then you start paying attention. So you're using mindfulness to pay attention to your speech, to your actions, to even to your thoughts. And then you see it naturally, that naturally leads to samadhi, the development of samadhi. Like, it would really help if I had a more steady presence in life. So then we sit down and we train our mind to have a more balanced, steady, stable, clear, unshakable awareness. And with that clarity, we have more wisdom. It's like we understand more deeply how ephemeral uncertain, vulnerable everything is. These are. This is like wisdom, seeing the underlying nature. And we see more clearly with that clarity of samadhi that even the intention of hate is unbearable. Like to be sitting with a really stable, clear mind and hate arises. It's like so... Even, even obsessing about a neutral thing Like, uh, how are you going to, you're on retreat, you've got some days in on the retreat, so your mind is pretty, the samadhi's sort of building. And then you've got a little bit of problem to solve. You know, maybe, like if it's a longer retreat, maybe it's the day you've got to bring your laundry to the laundry room, or something like that. And because it's something that only happens once every seven days, the mind wants to think about it. You know, should I wash that shirt? You know, I really want to be ecologically you know, sensitive and, you know, it doesn't really stink, but it feels so nice when clothes are clean. And so your mind is doing this. And this is relatively neutral thinking, right? It's not like tremendously greedy, tremendously hateful, but it's a little diluted, right? Or maybe a lot diluted. But you'll notice like the the direct effect of the mind spinning that way. It's like, what was once open, the energies of the body, mind open, light, free, are now all entangled and weightful and hard to bear. Just because the mind was spinning for seven minutes about the laundry, or about whether I should try to get in line, the lunch line early, or just wait until everybody gets their lunch, because I really don't like being in the middle where everything's sort of congested. And we can think, like, what would be better? I mean, it's amazing. People laugh because they've been on retreats and just know the sort of little vortexes of obsessive thinking that we get in, and then we suffer the the effects. And that's nothing compared to then when we get into real rage things, like an old problem at work, somebody who's really betrayed us comes to mind. And we can spin even for a couple days, and... And it's a real authentic hell realm. I mean, just how it feels in the mind, in the heart, in the body when we're in that. And we may have just enough mindfulness, like we're drowning, and just enough mindfulness to come above the surface and know, I'm in hell. And then we're just back in it. (laughs) Swirling, swirling, swirling. And then come up, oh, God, this really hurts. (laughs) This is how it is. But... People think, oh, that I'm having a bad retreat. But actually, that's a good insight to have because to, to the degree the mind realizes... See, this is that clarification that it matters. Because all of a sudden, it's like I start to... The mind starts to get very uh, concerned, very interested in not becoming distracted. Because an innocent distraction leads us down a wormhole that then can be one of these vortexes of rage, vortexes of lust, vortexes of, that can last for a while. It always starts with an innocent, oh, I wonder about that. Oh, look at that person, you know. And then an hour later, it's like you're married. (laughs) You've had every kind of sex you can imagine having, (laughs) you know, and you love and hate love and hate and the whole thing and now you're thinking about how you're going to get divorced (laughs) (laughs) and the thing is all of that all the hate and greed in that it's it's like laying down layers and layers of oppressive dukkha holding that has to be seen without feeding it and released Why would we, we wouldn't do that consciously. We only do it, nobody does this consciously with wisdom. We only do it when the mind is unaware, when wisdom is not present, right? As soon as wisdom sees it, it breaks, the heart breaks open and goes, honey, this is not helping. This is not helping. But sometimes there's just not enough wisdom and wisdom understands, you know, right now all I can do is have compassion because this thing's going to play itself out until the suffering exhausts the mind and it's the exhaustion that causes the mind to let go. Or something interesting comes up and the mind lets go to sort of, I mean, that's a. this is what we do with kids, right? We're like, and you can try this too. If you're sort of teetering on the edge of unskillful behavior, hand yourself a, sh- a shiny object. You know, oh, honey, how about this? Right, Like somebody, you know, Today, tonight, is the night to talk about sexual misconduct. So, you know, if you have an attraction, then to sort of, you know, give yourself something that's less unskillful to play with, or hopefully a lot less unskillful to play with, so that you're not going to magnetically keep going to that, because it's the only interesting thing in the room, or you're the only interesting thing in your life. Well, you've got these other interesting things. You could put your heart into that. You can put your... You know, your energy into this thing over here. Maybe that can be interesting. I think I read this before, but it's just a great quote from Shanti Deva, this ninth century Buddhist monk from India. He said, We are like senseless children who shrink from suffering but love its causes. <laughs> Nobody wants to suffer, but we like to do what leads to suffering. So to open up our discussion, maybe I'll just read um, Thich Hans. Hanh's... Uh, Description of the second and third precept, and then open it up. And uh, I sent you today. I thought it was a really interesting article, and and probably really good for our small groups next week. Buddhist sexual ethics by Winton Higgins, who is a Western teacher in New Zealand and Australia in the Insight Meditation tradition lineage. And uh, I thought it was a really good article he wrote. And then there's a really great rejoinder from two longtime. Uh, Buddhist monks, Western Buddhist monks in the, uh, the Thai Forest tradition, Ajahn Chah, Thai Forest tradition, Ajahn uh, Brahm, and Ajahn Nanadamo. So you can read what they say, and it's it's really good because, and we'll talk more about this next week about the danger of sense pleasures, because this lay person who who wrote the article "Buddhist Sexual Ethics," he's really Speaking highly of how Buddhism relates to sexuality, and I think it's generally right that the Buddha didn't sort of say, oh, this is bad; you can't do this." You know, these are the naughty things you're you're not allowed to do. And evidently, I don't know if this is really true, but uh, what I've read from historians and academics, you know, it was a relatively open culture around sexuality at the time of the Buddha. It's probably it, it was patriarchal, but it, in terms of what was allowed in sexual expression, I think, was maybe not what we might imagine for a culture a couple thousand years ago. And uh, so, and the way the Buddhist morality is set up, it's really set up for any culture, no matter what the sexual mores might be, because it's really about the non harming. And uh, he makes this argument that you wouldn't even need the third precept about undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct because if you're not taking what isn't given and if you're not harming, you know, and if you're using speech in a skillful way and you're not intoxicating the mind, I mean, I don't know about you, but a lot of my sexual misadventures happened in high school when I was drunk or high or something. And, uh, so if we're not doing those things, probably our sexual activity is relatively wholesome. But the, the, what the Buddhist monks say as a rejoinder to this article is, um, yeah, th- that approach to sexuality is probably good if you just want to manage being a sexual being without undue suffering. But if you want to be enlightened, you have to approach uh, sense pleasures as dangerous. So we'll talk more about this next week because I think it's something to dig in. And I, and I think it's especially an interesting topic for this small group. So I encourage you to at least read some, if not the whole thing. It's only 11 pages. But let me just read this from, and we can dig into it as a whole group right now, but let me just read what Thich Nhat Hanh, this Vietnamese Buddhist monk, says about The second precept, the one about not stealing, not taking what isn't given. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I vow to cultivate loving kindness and learn ways to work for the well-being of people, animals, and plants. I vow to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal, not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will do everything in my power to prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species. And one of the important things about this precept of not taking what isn't given is to have a real sense of humility like we don't know what we're taking that's not given. Maybe we should assume we are taking taking advantage of others in ways that we're not discerning. Because if we don't assume that, we won't look. We won't be willing to look at some of the systemic, unconscious, mostly unconscious habits, societal habits, personal habits we have that exploit, that harm other beings. Just because we assumed Right, That's the expression of stealing is often the assumption that I'm not stealing. That what I have, I deserve to have. I mean, this is really relevant like in terms of uh, the history of this country with slavery and, and the taking of the land from the native peoples. It's like, how often does it occur to us that we're living on stolen land? or part of the infrastructure, part of the wealth of this country has come because people have been terribly exploited and killed and enslaved. And even today, in terms of trade and and other sort of structures, people are being exploited. So how do we, like, so that's taking something that's not being freely given. Like, And you might say, well, they want those jobs or, you know, whatever kind of excuse we have. But but part of it is that uh, when people are oppressed, you know, they don't really, like, what do people need to make choices for themselves? If it's like starvation or being exploited, that's not really a choice. So this this reflection on um, undertaking the training to refrain from taking what's not given, we have to approach it with a lot of humility and a lot of forgiveness. And we need to sort of use each other to learn to listen deeply. And this is the hard part of it, and it's really coming alive now more in our society as issues of racial injustice and the criminal justice system come to light more and more, it's just like, oh yeah, okay. So speaking from my own personal point of view of being a privileged person, it's really easy to not go there, and it's really unpleasant to go there, to start uh, doing the work of unpacking how I actually am living by taking what isn't, hasn't been freely offered hasn't been offered in a fair system, right? And it's really important that we're willing to go to the nth degree. That's the whole point of these trainings, because the, the wrong way to approach morality is like, I just want to be good enough that like I'm not going to get caught. I'm not going to be named as a bad person. That's not, morality as a practice is liberating, but we have to do it to the nth degree. And the thing is, it's, it may be unpleasant that it's liberating. So to not do it is the opposite of liberation, right? It's enslavement. It's its own kind of spiritual, like, and people tell us this. It doesn't always ring true, you know, that living with privilege, it's its own kind of suffering. But it seems easy to live that way. Right, to assume, well, yeah, maybe, but I'm okay. But we have this is why this engine of samadhi, like we need samadhi, we need more and more sensitivity to realize, no, it isn't okay. It doesn't feel good. So the whole point of unpacking it and the unpleasantness of unpacking it is because we'd be willing to live with this suffering forever because we're just not sensitive enough to realize how much it hurts to live with injustice. It hurts. And we you know there are ways that this has been talked about in the Buddhist tradition over the years, you know, that there's no awakening until everybody's awakened. And this all sounds sort of abstract and metaphysical in a way. But there's some real truth to it. Like unless we're giving our life away completely for the well-being of others, as long as we're living for our own well-being, it doesn't feel good. We're not happy. We're not free. We really have to give our life away. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to become an activist standing on I-94, blocking traffic. But one way or another, and it will look different in everybody's life, one way or another we have to give our life away completely we have to give all of our selfish motivations away it's the only way to be happy and this this is this, so this is a whole different understanding of sila ethical conduct it's not like we're being good because god's going to punish us we're being good because we can't really be happy unless we give our life away for the benefit of all you know really contributing Sila, contributing this integrity in all that we do. And I've used up all our time. (laughs) I'm really sorry. (laughs) But we'll have small groups next week. And um, yeah, and find ways to talk to friends about this. Because I think, especially with this material, it's really helpful to talk to people to clarify um, the reality of Sila in our own lives in practical ways. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. And let's bring to mind Haya. Most of you know Haya, a longtime Buddhist studies person who had her knee operated this morning. And I got an email from her. <laughs> she was cogent enough to type out an email. And it sounds like everything went well. And a lot of you know Kyoko Katayama, an important teacher here at, in our community, and an on-and-off Buddhist studies person. She's having her knee done tomorrow, so we can send her. Hmm. Oh, it's her hip. Oh, I thought it was Tuesday. Wednesday. Okay, we're coming right up. And who knows who else is in the middle of something, probably a lot of our community members. So just wishing everyone safety and healing out in our swirling world. Thanks for coming, everyone. See you next Monday. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website,